0: Good morning. Welcome to another episode of our monthly series, Hard Truths, examining systemic racism in the U.S. Today, environmental justice in the U.S. government. At 529 a.m. on July 16, 1945, the U.S. Army detonated an atomic bomb, the first test in American history in a desert valley near Alamo Gordo, New Mexico. At the time, the location was kept secret, but the huge blast woke members of the Hispanic and indigenous communities living next door. This was about a month before the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Henry Herrera was 11 years old then, in a town, Tolarusa, just outside of Alamo Gordo. He spoke with our race and justice reporter, Russell Contreras, about what it was like in the moments after the bomb went off.
1: And when that thing that exploded, she had just hung up her white clothes on the clothesline. But here come the
0: dust. That dust Henry's talking about didn't just cling to clothes like Henry's mom had hung up outside. It also settled on people's homes, not knowing the dust was radioactive. Henry says they wore those clothes for years. And other residents took trips to the site and even brought radioactive green glass back into their houses. Eventually, people started getting sick with rare cancers.
1: It was, oh, it was quite a while back later, you know. And people started getting sick, you know, and and nobody knew why.
0: Henry's now 87. He's had his jaw reconstructed because of mouth cancer. He and other residents believe these illnesses were caused by the bomb.
1: We had no idea. The, The military didn't tell us a damn thing. Not even, I'm sorry, not one goddamn word from the military.
0: And it wasn't just this bomb, the US government has a history of endangering communities of color to produce nuclear weapons. During the Cold War, the government was mining uranium all across the Navajo Nation. These are just a few examples of what climate activists and academics call environmental racism. Like housing and employment discrimination, the term's a way to explain that environmental laws aren't enforced equally across racial lines and that some communities, especially Black, Latino and Native American, are left to bear the brunt of these hazardous and often deadly effects. Environmental racism can also be about access to clean air. Take the Chevron Refinery in Richmond, California, for example. The surrounding area is made up of primarily Black and Latino residents, where the asthma rate is at 25%. That's almost twice the state average. Or it can be about clean water, like in Jackson, Mississippi, where storms and freezing temperatures left many Black residents without water for weeks in March. The movement to change all of this is known as environmental justice, and it puts vulnerable communities at the center of climate policy and solutions.
1: What the environmental justice movement attempts to do is to make sure that no community uh, is left behind when it comes to environmental protection, environmental enforcement. And it's very clear that everybody is not getting the same level of protection that others who are living uh, in the suburbs or who are living in affluent communities. We say it's not just, it's not fair, and it's illegal.
0: Dr. Robert Bullard is known to many as the father of environmental justice. He's a distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University in Houston, and he's a member of President Joe Biden's Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Today, we're going to talk about how the federal government is tackling environmental justice under the first black man charged with leading the EPA, Administrator Michael Reagan, and what it will take to make real change. But first, I went to Dr. Bullard to explain how we've come to understand that the environment and racism are linked. Dr. Bullard, thanks for taking the time to speak with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Can we start at the beginning of your career? What was the first instance of you observing environmental racism that led you to dedicating your entire career to addressing this?
1: Wow, that's a long one. It was way back in 1979 in Houston, Texas. I was asked by my wife to uh, collect data for a lawsuit that she had filed. Uh, She needed someone to put on a map. All the landfills were located in Houston's generators and garbage dumps. And that was the first uh, lawsuit uh, Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation to challenge environmental racism. And so I got drafted and I did the study and uh, I've been doing studies and writing books over the last 40, uh, 40 years. Uh, As a matter of fact, 42 years.
0: One of your earlier books, "Dumping in Dixie: Race, Class, and Environmental Quality," came out in 1990, and it was one of, if not the first text, to address inequities in the environment and climate. Was there pushback at that time for the framing, for you framing it that way?
1: Of course, there was pushback. You know, I, when I I finished the book in 1989, and it took me a whole year to get it published because I got nasty notes from publishers saying, "Oh, there's no such thing as environmental racism." Uh, the environment is neutral, it's subjective. Everybody is treated the same. And finally, I was able to get uh, a publisher uh, out of Boulder, Colorado. I don't know if it's Mountain High, Air, Bean Sprouts, Tofu, Marijuana, whatever. They published my book. And so that was the first book on environmental justice, Dumping and Dixie. Uh, it was the first book, and they made it a textbook. And that's how I got into the academy and got in the hands of lots of folks.
0: You have been doing this, as you've said, for decades. How important was last year, 2020, in Americans' understanding of how systemic racism does affect people's access to water, to their sanitation, to environmental justice?
1: The summer of 2020 was a great awakening. It was a great awakening to the fact that there were so many cascading, multiple converging threats on America, and particularly Black America. When we saw... You know, what was happening with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the others, that was about Black Lives Matter. It was about criminal justice. But at the same time, you know, I can't breathe is also about I can't breathe because my community is surrounded by 15 chemical plants, refineries. That's that's choking my my community. You're waking up at two o'clock in the morning because of some uh, toxic spill, some explosion. I can't breathe. My life is threatened. You know, when I started in 1979 in Houston, Texas, with Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation, fighting environmental racism, environmental justice was a footnote. But 2020 of the summer, it became a headline. We're fighting to breathe. We're also fighting to live in a, a society where you can have a good, sustainable and resilient future.
0: In 15 seconds, we'll hear more from Dr. Bullard, but also EPA Administrator Michael Reagan on how environmental justice is changing his agency's role. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Welcome back to Hard Truths. I'm Nyla Boodoo. The impacts of climate change aren't equal. We've seen that all over the world with developing countries like Bangladesh or the Maldives. But that's also true right here in the U.S., The EPA just put out a report looking at four different socially vulnerable groups when it comes to climate change. And here's what you need to know. Black people are 40% more likely to currently live in areas with the highest projected mortality rates because of climate change. Hispanic and Latino people are 43% more likely to work in places where high temperature days will cause them to lose job opportunities. And Native Americans are 48% more likely to live in places that will be flooded because of sea level rise. Michael Reagan is the first Black man to be in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency. Before joining the EPA, he led the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality. Administrator Reagan, thank you for being with us here on Axios.
2: Thank you all for having me.
0: So we've seen some striking evidence recently in this country of the ways in which communities of color are disproportionately subjected to the impacts of climate change. We just saw this tragically play out in Louisiana and New York City. How did you try to quantify that? How did you want to study and capture what's going on here?
2: You know, thank you for the question. And EPA released one of the most comprehensive and advanced studies around environmental justice to date. We know that there are certain communities that are disproportionately impacted. It's more than a feeling. It's data that points to and demonstrates how this is impacting low income and communities of color. But unfortunately, you don't have to read the science to know that climate change is real. Too many people are seeing it and feeling it and living it as a real experience.
0: Do you think the goals of the EPA when it comes to environmental justice align with the goals of racial justice groups like Black Lives Matter?
2: I do, I believe that environmental justice is racial justice, is climate justice. And this is why it's important for us to partner with the civil rights organizations, to partner with the climate justice organizations, to partner with the environmental justice organizations uh, because we don't need to recreate the wheel. That's what we're doing at EPA.
0: How do you bring those groups to the table when their history of different federal agencies, including the EPA, has excluded these groups for such a long part of American history?
2: You invite them to the table and listen. Listen to what these communities have borne disproportionately for far too long. Listen to their concerns. Listen to their solutions. Now, I think it does take time to build trust, And so now it's on us to begin to extend those invitations to those who have not been a part of the discussion, ensure that their voices are being heard and considered in the solutions.
0: Michael Reagan is the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you. The EPA has come under fire from activists like the Sunrise Movement for falling short on environmental justice, especially as climate change has become more visible. But one of President Biden's plans on this front has support from people like the father of environmental justice, Dr. Robert Bullard, who we heard from earlier. Biden set up a Council on Environmental Justice with activists and academics from across the country to push forth what's called the Justice 40 initiative to ensure that 40% of all the benefits from climate investments go to our most vulnerable communities. Dr. Bullard says that initiative is key to actually making progress and improving environmental conditions for these communities.
1: We have to make sure that the monies flow to those cities and counties and municipalities. What we have to do is to assist and support what's happening on the ground to ensure that the historical pattern of how federal funds and disaster funding and FEMA and other kinds of funding, even COVID monies, that this dominant paradigm, money follows money, money follows power, money follows whites. That's how it generally happens. And the communities of greatest need get left out. We have to flip that script. We have to flip it so that money and resources flow toward need. We're talking about giant steps and we're talking about steps to uh, eradicate those structural factors that create and perpetuate inequality.
0: But getting the federal government to take those giant steps will continue to be a challenge. And for communities and families that have already been devastated by environmental racism, for people like Henry Herrera in New Mexico, the government has failed them time and time again. From President Harry Truman to now President Biden, they're still waiting for someone to acknowledge and compensate them for everything they've lost. Axios Today is brought to you by Axios and Pushkin Industries. This episode was produced by Naria Marquez Martinez and edited by Alexandra Boti. Jeannie Montalvo is our sound engineer. Special thanks to Axios Executive Editor, Sarah Cahilani-Goo, Heartress Editor, Michelle Salcedo, Executive Producer, Dan Bobkoff, and Managing Editor for Business, Asia Whitaker-Moore. And for this episode especially, thanks to climate and energy reporters, Andrew Friedman and Ben Geeman, and race and justice reporter, Russell Contreras. We've got so much more about so many other aspects of systemic racism when it comes to the environment at Axios.com. And we always love to hear feedback from you. Tell us what you think by emailing us at podcasts at axios.com or you can always message me directly on Twitter. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we're back with the news on Monday.